Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good afternoon in Copenhagen, where Dr. Luke Patey joins us again on the show. For those of you uh, who remember, he is our go-to guy for all things China, Sudan, South Sudan. Actually, that's not true, Kobus, because we've also got Dan Large as well. So you're yes, one of our guys. We cannot dismiss yeah. Dan Large in this debate as well. But, uh, but Luke, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. And uh, for those of you not familiar, Luke is a uh, senior researcher at the Danish Institute of International Studies in Copenhagen, where he lives. Uh, but also, he is the author of a fantastic book that just came out in paperback this month, uh, in October, uh, The Kings of Crude, China, India, and the Global Struggle of Oil in Sudan and South Sudan. It sounds like a wonky title, but it's actually a fascinating read, and it's really um, I don't mean to dismiss wonky titles because both of you guys are academics, but <laughs> sometimes they can be rather intimidating. But this is an excellent read. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about all things China, South Sudan. And the reason why is because in the past you know, week or so, news has just been popping up all over the place that changed this dynamic of what's going on. So we're going to put three key issues to, to Luke to get his, his, uh, his take on things. There were some comments, number one, Luke. And I'll, I'll kind of put all three, let you kind of stir the pot and tell us which ones are important and which ones aren't. China's non-interference doctrine, which has been something that has been around for 40 years since the Zhou Enlai era in China, which really stood as the benchmark of Chinese foreign policy. And that said that we will not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. And the idea was that China would be a different non-imperial power, but at the same time, it was a defensive foreign policy move as well, because they didn't want other people to interfere in their affairs. Now, South Sudan comes along and really puts a test to that policy, because the Chinese are not only they were selling weapons to to certain sides in the conflict up until recently. Uh, they've been very involved in the diplomacy there. You sent to me an article that showed that all the way back in the late 2008-2009 uh, era, they were meeting in places like Dubai with officials from, from both sides. And so, again, they're very much involved in the internal affairs of South Sudan. And now some comments from uh, China's top Africa diplomat, uh, Zhong Jianhua, muddy that water. Point number two. The United States is reportedly seeking a U.N. resolution that will seek sanctions against certain individuals who are, quote, undermining South Sudan's stability. How do the Chinese look at U.N. sanctions? Does that mess up their diplomacy? That came up this week. And finally, something that didn't come up this week but just about a month ago was the big scandal over $38 million of Norinco uh, small arms that were sold from China's largest state-owned weapons manufacturer to the South Sudanese government. So that caused a big brouhaha because earlier in the summer in June, China's ambassador to South Sudan said, hey, we will not sell weapons. So let me throw those kind of three issues that kind of have been bubbling over the summer since the last time we talked to you and give us your take on where we are today in the diplomacy in the context of those three key points. Okay. Um, a lot to chew on a there lot. for sure. Yes. Well, I mean... I think over you know the span of, of almost a decade, we're seeing that uh, China in, in the Sudans is really being forced away from this uh, long-standing policy of non-interference because of its uh, real interests in the country, mainly oil investments. And 
Um, nowhere else than Sudan and South Sudan has this, this policy of non-interference been, been stretched. So I think that the recent comments um, by, by China's special envoy are, are him basically turning up the volume uh, of what his, his predecessors have done. Um, I think, you know, the, the interference, if you want to call it that, started with, with Hu Jintao's, uh, the former Chinese president's visit to Khartoum in 2007, where he told uh, the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, that they should that the Sudanese should, should care more about what was going on in Darfur, where there was a civil war uh, at the time, and there still is. So um, uh, the current envoy, uh, Zhong's co comments that he's, he's met directly with the opposition, I think are, are really sort of Beijing, uh, really turning up the volume um, and, and trying to, to have a, a bigger role. Um, and I, and I, what frustrates me, though, is that we, we keep on uh, repeating this story of um, China sort of stepping away from its non-interference policy. And I think it's time we start to analyze the actual impact of, of, of its new uh, and evolving uh, position uh, in, in the Sudans. So uh, this, the Chinese special envoy helped negotiate a ceasefire uh, for the South Sudan civil war in January this year. Uh, and he called this uh, initiative uh, that he was involved in as a new chapter in China's uh, foreign affairs. But within weeks, uh, that ceasefire, um, that regional partners and other international partners also helped to, to push, uh, fell apart. And the sides quickly went back to fighting and are, and are still, uh, the civil war is still ongoing. So, I mean, this, this more engaged China is not necessarily able to to really settle this conflict, to protect its interests. So we're seeing sort of the limitations of, of China's diplomacy. And I think the next step for China is actually um, to, now that they've sort of shedded non-interference in the Sudans, the next step would be to, to more robustly cooperate with, with the international community. And I don't, I'm not implying um, that they fall in line with sanctioned regimes that the U.S., the U.K., and others often uh, promote, but that, you know, they consider um, how they can work alongside Western powers to bring about peace. Um, so, I mean, diving into the sanction, sanctions question that the U.S. has brought up, so international sanctions against uh, certain actors in the South uh, Sudanese war, I mean, I, I think the reaction from China will be quite hesitant um, towards uh, supporting any sort of uh, international sanction regime, as, as is, has typically been the case. But perhaps, I mean, they, they won't stand uh, against it. They won't veto it if, it if, for instance, it doesn't target um, top political leaders in, in, in South Sudan. And, and so I, I think that, you know, they're not necessarily going to, to veto this potential resolution. Um, and, I mean, the resolution itself... At, as you know, we're hearing in reports, doesn't seem to be too robust. I mean, an arms embargo uh, doesn't seem to be part of this potential resolution. And, and that's, I think, what's, what's really needed um, in the conflict right now. Um, I was wondering um, to to bring it to the um, to the Norinco deal. Um, what did you make of the of of the 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 current um, you know kind of installment of the deal getting cancelled and um, it's you know the 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 kind of level of press attention that it got. Like what what did you make of the mm -hmm. of the entire seeing the entire process play out in the media? 
It's quite an interesting one. I think it demonstrates that um, where China is concerned in Africa, the right hand doesn't necessarily know what the left hand is doing. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs wasn't uh, aware or, or wasn't so, sort of moving in unison with what the Chinese arms manufacturer Norinco was doing. So if you look back um, last summer or this summer, I think in around June, the, the Chinese ambassador to South Sudan told um, the chief of the uh, South Sudanese army that a new arms agreement that was planned would not go forward. And then Bloomberg came out with a piece um, just a month later showing that an arms agreement had gone forward um, and that $38 million worth of arms had been shipped to South Sudan. So making you know, the, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, and the, embassy, the Chinese embassy in South Sudan look a little bit out of place, that they, they weren't sort of uh, coordinating with their, with their arms manufacturer. And, that, and, and then more recently in September, we, we see um, the, the, the embassy come out again and say, saying that no arms, uh, no arms will now be sold after the fact uh, that these arms have already been sold. So I think what this demonstrates is that, um, you know, we have multiple ch Chinese actors in the Sudans uh, and across Africa that um, at times have conflicting interests, that the, the Chinese government's um, position um, might, might be to, to wholeheartedly support uh, peace and, and, the, and the peace talks in, in South Sudan. But um, other Chinese actors, such as Norinco, have other interests. Uh, they're an arms manufacturer. They, want, they, they sell weapons. So they've sort of moved ahead um, with, with those objectives, and we don't see sort of much coordination going on. Recently, you gave a talk at uh, Johns Hopkins University's uh, School of Advanced International Studies, and you, you kind of opened your discussion with uh, some milestones about the conflict in South Sudan. It's now really coming up and be about the one-year anniversary of the civil war itself. Thousands have been killed. Millions have, have been displaced. And it strikes me that this, this conflict is only intensifying. And, and, and I'm curious in terms of where do you think China's National Petroleum Corporation, who is the, the major investor in South Sudan, what their take on it now is. Now that they are seeing this conflict, which is not burning out, it's still going on, um, is there ap do they have the appetite to stick with this? And, 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 and that's really, I guess, my key question, because if CNPC bails and decides, you know what, it's easier to invest in Tanzania, Uganda, some of these other places where there's natural resources that are being extracted and they're doing some very large uh, fossil fuel finds and discoveries, then maybe they'll bail out of uh, out of South Sudan. What do you think? Um, I, I don't see CNPC uh, leaving South Sudan. Um, what I what I think is going to uh, to happen if the conflict uh, continues uh, and continues to intensify is that CNPC and its other partners in South Sudan's oil industry uh, won't be investing um, the hundreds of millions of dollars that are needed. To, to really uh, improve South Sudan's declining oil production. So it's, it's becoming sort of um, a, a case of security and, and political risk for CNPC now. Whereas um, when Sudan uh, was united and CNPC was, was first getting involved, this was really an, interna an international training ground for the company, somewhere where they, ma somewhere where they made tremendous profits. So now it's more of a case for how CNPC is handling uh, political and security risk. And I, and I think the company is learning a lot um, from, 
from its its experiences in in this conflict to date. I mean, we we've seen that they they've responded um, quite quickly in evacuating many of their workers to Juba uh, when the conflict started. So evacuating the worker many workers from the from oil fields and and leaving just skeleton crews behind. So I think the 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 big um, uh, shame for for South Sudan's economy is that uh, South Sudan's a young country. It's 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 around three and a half years old, but it it inherited old oil fields from from Sudan when it separated in 2011, and those oil fields need significant investment in enhanced oil recovery. So drilling new wells, basically to to help push more oil out of the ground. And no company, and CNBC included, is going to make those investments uh, under the current security and, and political cl- climate. So it's going to hurt um, South Sudan's oil industry and, and as a result, its economy uh, in the long run. Um, Luke, so, so what is on, on the Sudanese, South Sudanese side, what is the calculus there? You know, why, why you, because it's such, such a one product economy, um, you know, everything depends on, on oil getting out and, and oil fields getting upgraded, as you said. So are they just, are, are the both sides of the conflict just simply banking on this idea that everyone is always going to want oil and that no one, you know, CNPC is not going to pull out no matter what? Or, you know, kind of like, what, what, what is the kind of logic behind not making peace? I think that this is, you know, a pure power struggle between uh, the leadership uh, within within the ruling party, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, that has uh, degenerated into ethnic fighting uh, among the population, and that both sides, you know, they see oil as the prize in the conflict at the end. I mean, both sides have clearly demonstrated they're still looking for, for military gains and military victories in the conflict. Um, the rebel or the opposition side um, is, I think, very interested in shutting down the industry completely. So not destroying the oil fields, um, but uh, causing enough insecurity that uh, the oil companies will suspend their operations and really put pressure on the South Sudanese government uh, because that's where it derives uh, most most of its uh, income. So I, I really think, unfortunately, that... Um, they see oil as as really uh, the prize at the end of of of, of the civil war, and, and both sides are still quite determined to to have a military victory. You know, another event that's occurred since the last time we spoke with you is the deployment of a detachment of armed uh, PLA soldiers as part of a multinational force there under the blue helmets of the United Nations, uh, and they've arrived. They've arrived, and again, this is part of a bigger a broader trend of Chinese military engagement through multinational uh, forces on, in Africa. But what struck me, and I'd like to get your, your take on this, was the kind of rationale for the deployment. And it was to protect the people and the interests, which are the presumably the corporate interests around the oil, uh, which, which kind of justifies it. That, to me, is a very American rationale for deploying military assets into uh, into, into foreign countries, in, particularly in Africa. We have used the rationale in the, in the United States for, for decades to say we are intervening in this conflict in order to protect the people and the interests. That was, of course, the justification for the intervention in Vietnam. It served in the, uh, in, in, even in the 19th century with the war in Cuba, which was to protect American interests, so, so to speak. So I just, I, did you notice a change in Chinese diplomatic rhetoric uh, in, in terms of the justification for the deployment, or was that more consistent with what the Chinese had been doing as part of their evolution of their non-interference doctrine? 
I think it's pretty consistent. I think Ch- Chinese um, uh, diplomats, um, from from the foreign minister to, to to special envoys to Africa, have always insisted that um, they're they're very much interested in the Sudanese and South Sudanese in protecting uh, Chinese investments and citizens uh, in, in the Sudan. So that's always been part of part of their uh, their policy. I'm not too sure that. Uh, that is just about oil, however. It's just about protecting Chinese oil interests. I mean, we've seen um, China get involved uh, in peacekeeping and sort of infantry troops getting involved in peacekeeping in, in Mali uh, last year. So this is also, I think, an evolution of, of China's engagement uh, in UN peacekeeping. And, and we don't know um, exactly where this, this infantry battalion come into to South Sudan will be stationed. They're actually set to arrive in early 2015, next year. And there's currently um, some peacekeepers, part of the other uh, UN mission in, in Sudan, in Darfur, um, and they're mostly engineers. So if the troops are, are if the new troops coming into South Sudan will, will be based uh, in sort of conflict zones around the oil fields, then it will be sort of quite telling um, that they're very much there to to you know guard the oil installations just as they are um, to 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 uphold uh, peace or to try to bring about peace in the country. So I think we still need to see how this evolves when when the boots hit the ground. Um, on a, a slightly different issue, um, there's been recently been this strange controversy where um, officials in the South Sudanese um, government accuse the Chinese um, communications company Huawei of, of hacking and spying. Um, I was wondering what you made of that scandal and to which extent you know it, it reflects you know stresses within the South Sudanese government. Yeah, it's it's really an an evolving issue right now. Um, basically, um, the the Ministry of Information in South Sudan accused Huawei of of, of hacking its computers and sending an email from from uh, its officials, so from Ministry of Information officials, to the Exim Bank in China, uh, questioning an agreement that Exim Bank had made with ZTE. Uh, Huawei's uh, main Chinese rival um, for a a $50 million uh, digital TV deal, I think, to upgrade the South Sudan TV and radio services. So I I think, first of all, this may um, show us sort of an internationalization of the rivalry between these two major Chinese telecoms, that there is some sort of competition for uh, these Exim Bank deals. Basically, Huawei, um, uh, in this this alleged email, uh, said that to the to the Exim Bank that the the, the deal that was made uh, with ZTE was overpriced and that it could be done for for millions of dollars uh, less. Um, but I, I think there's also a South there must be a South Sudanese story here as well because just today um, the the head of South Sudan TV resigned, uh, indicating that he had. Uh, disagreements with the Minister uh, of Information. So um, it's it's really an evolving story, and I, I think it demonstrates both um, this, um, you know, 
dis possible disorganization between Chinese interests uh, in, in South Sudan, but also so there is a South Sudanese political story behind there as well. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, there's so many wrinkles. I mean, we could go on for another three or four hours to talk about this. Uh, but it really highlights one of one of the lines that you said in your speech at Johns Hopkins that that Sudan or the Sudans, if you will, are really the rare instance of Africa affecting China, where it's usually the other way around, where China has such a dramatic impact on Africa. But clearly here, from telecoms to, to foreign policy to the non-interference doctrine, uh, in so many different ways, China's being influenced by what the, what's going on and the events in, in the Sudans. And I think that's absolutely fascinating to see. And you can see the magnitude of these events being very important. Just to help people kind of focus a little bit, because we've covered so much ground in this discussion. What should people focus on in the next, say, in the short term, the next three to six months as the events to watch uh, in terms of the Sino-Sudanese relationship? Uh, I think we're getting into quite an interesting stage where um, I think we're starting to to get in more detailed, uh, a more detailed understanding of China and Africa, that we're starting to get to the stage where um, both the media and research is more effectively um, sort of disentangling the diverse set of actors that make up China and Africa. From, as you said, from state-owned companies, from the government officials, different ministries, migrant workers. And I think we're starting to see um, sort of uh, what, what is sort of everyday political and business life in China unfolding in Africa. And, and I, I think that's quite uh, fascinating to watch. And it presents this this big foreign policy challenge for the Chinese government, for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for the Ministry of Commerce, to actually try to coordinate between the different Chinese companies and actors in Africa to, to fall under a common policy of engagement. So I think, you know, in, in the coming months and years, that, that's going to be uh, an issue that the Chinese government, I think, is going to take on uh, more forcefully. Again, uh, Luke Patey is the author of Kings of Crude, China, India, and the Global Struggle of Oil in Sudan and South Sudan. He's also a senior researcher at the Danish Institute of International Studies in Copenhagen. I, I would imagine you're going to have job security for quite some time, given the, the magnitude of this issue. I mean, it just seems to be getting more interesting, more layered, more nuanced. If people want to stay on top of what you're writing and what you're reading these days and this, the events that are unfolding in the Sino-Sudanese relationship and South Sudanese relationship, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Luke Patey, P-A-T-E-Y. And I also have a website, LukePatey.com, where they can find uh, my work. And you can find also your book is available on Amazon. So uh, in, in paperback and in hardback. Now, by the way, your paperback price is very high. Do you know, <laughs> do you know why that is? Like 25 bucks for a paperback. Is there any way we can bring that down a little bit? I dare say that's a competitive price in academia. <laughs> you guys need to get a Kindle at some point, you know. So, okay, so for the wealthy students out there, it's a wonderful read on paperback. paperback. Hey, Kobus, uh, you know, what, when you publish your book, I hope it's going to be uh, a little bit cheaper. With, with academic with academic books, I, I've seen academic books where Kindle edition is hundred dollars. Yeah, and you know so uh, the, the publishing model is, is nuts. I bought Ambassador <laughs> David Shin's China Africa book, and it was like sixty dollars. So I guess in some ways, uh, Luke, you're right. Twenty five bucks is a steal. <laughs> Kindle edition is on its way, though. So okay, good. Uh, Kobus, how can people stay in touch with you? 
You'll see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Great. While we're all giving out our Twitter names, I'll be the last one here. E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. A couple conversations that occur also with Luke and myself on Twitter when we when South Sudan comes up. So it's a great place to kind of stay on top of a curated China-Africa feed, if you will. Uh, and of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way is iTunes. Just type in China Africa Project and we'll come up right there in the search. Uh, also, uh, we're online on Stitcher and SoundCloud. You can download our app uh, for Android and iOS and listen to the podcast that way. And if you're in South Africa, find us on the BlackBerry Network there as well. Finally, last but not least, uh, if you're a fan of China File, that's ChinaFile.com. Uh, our podcast is up there almost every week as well. So that's a great uh, website brought to you by the Asia Society. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>